0: Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Adam Hawkins. In each episode, I present a small batch of a theory and practices behind building a high-velocity software organization. Topics include DevOps, Lean, software architecture, continuous delivery, and conversations with industry leaders. Now, let's begin today's episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Small Batches. This is the second part of my conversation with John Willis on Deming. If you don't know John, he is the co author of the DevOps Handbook and the host of the Profound podcast. In this conversation, or this part of the conversation, we talk about Dr. Deming's final book, The New Economics, which introduces the system of profound knowledge. With that, let's get into the conversation. So, John, welcome back to Small Batches. Uh, We're here the next episode of the Deming series, and we're going to be talking about the system of profound knowledge. So I want to get into it.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, we talked about sort of new um, or out of a crisis being his first book and very um, um humanistic and, you know, all those things. The thing about, really, to me, the new economics is, uh, like I said, I think when he wrote that first book, he was just fed up. And then what happened was, like I said, it, it became this sort of Deming mania. Like he became incredibly busy, and he winds up writing this, this second book, which is, okay, do you really want to know what I know? So he puts this, uh, and he, he codifies this idea that he calls the system of profound laws. And I've had people come up to me like, John, isn't that pretty like egotistical to call his own system? I'm like, let me explain it to you, and then you then decide whether it should be called profound. I have no problem calling my podcast profound, right? So here's the thing, right? So he had all this work, right? Let's start with the sort of the what is the, you know most interesting work, but it's sort of simple, which is the theory of variation and variation, right? And that's the statistical process control, you know, and then really sort of really understanding this body of work that Walter Shewitt created at Bell, basically Hawthorne Labs, and and how uh, you use um, statistics. To take the human element out of this thing, right? Like it's it's just a fascinating way to to just use a very simplistic, uh, you know, standard deviation, just basic stuff to sort of look at data and really understand, you know, quality. You know, again, we just spent a whole lot of time on there, and, but um, so that's basically understanding variation, understanding types of variation, understanding how to react to variation, not to have knee-jerk reactions to the wrong type you know like you know a sort of anomalous thing like sort of black swan don't fire people mm-hmm. right or um, and then so that's the sort of first lens so deming would say there were four lenses to understand complexity of complex systems right and the first lens is uh, the theory of variation right the second is basically uh, the theory of systems or system thinking right and that really sort of draws from a sort of a body of work of of what he learned about complexity uh, what sort of Golrat talks about? Although there's not really a lot of evidence that they collaborated uh, a lot, but there's always a shoulder giants thing going on. Uh, I'm sure he was very involved in some. In fact, I know for a fact that he's corresponded with some of the original chaos theories and and those things. So he was he was and in his heart of hearts, anybody who sort of pays attention knows that you have to look at things as a system view, right? System thinking, right? So that's a whole body of work. And in fact, um, what's interesting is. In Peter Senge's uh, Fifth Discipline, Deming wrote a whole letter to him when he got an early copy of it, and Senge responded. So there was like even sort of this like mix between the sort of the Fifth Discipline work and Deming's thoughts, right? Um, so those are two, uh, and now you get into sort of two interesting ones. Um, the third one is uh, Theory of Knowledge.
0: Hmm.
1: You could simply say that's PDCA, or Deming called it PDSA. But um, plan do check act, which is scientific method. So if we talked about Mike, what Mike Rotha wrote yeah. brilliantly in Toyota Kata, we talked about improvement kata. Right, mean, that's basically it. Is it's it's not just doing plan do plan do plan do. It's always treating. In fact, one of my favorite sort of quotes on that subject is from uh, Dr. Spears uh, decoding the t- Toyota Production DNA in that HBR review. He said, um, he said Toyota was a community of scientists continually experimenting. Mm. Right. That's like imagine that's the way like you work as an organization. Interesting enough, a lot of that comes is based on epistemology, um, actually philosophy. Um, Some of the stuff I'm writing about is how Deming and Schuert were big fans of C.I. Lewis, which was one of the the early pragmatists. um, You know, in fact, Deming said that. you know, Schuett told me he had to read this book called "Mind in the New and the World Order." And Devin said he had to read it six times; it was so hard to comprehend. Right? So, um, all right. So that's the first three of a four lens. Problem. Now you could say that those three, or I would say, in those three, are pretty awesome, right? Like, I'm right, gonna look at complexity and with all this stuff, right? And like, in like, you know, so let's look at the sort of statistical analysis of what you're doing. Let's make sure we understand that we're doing sort of scientific thinking and method in our process. And let's um, let's clearly understand that we're always global. What Gorat would call global optima, not local optima, right? Where I think he becomes profound is where he pulls in. And I I had this, uh, um, I, I posed this to Doris Quinn in my podcast. She's a woman who traveled with him his last two years of life and went to Ford. and And I said that my theory is that like, yes, Deming taught a whole lot to the Japan culture, but I think he pulled in a lot from them. I think intrinsic motivation, I, you know, I, he was clearly a humanist, right? He, right from the get-go. The way he thought about humans, his quotes about humans, how how he wanted the worker to be treated, and how he, he felt that most sins were because of leadership, right, and, uh, you know, and... But I think that culture really worked. gave him a lot of value, and he loved that culture. They loved him, and he he loved the food. There's a there's a there's a great book that his secretary wrote. It's like she documents everything, and like every other sort of paragraph is about. We went to this restaurant. We had this amazing, you know. And um, but it's this theory psychology, right? And where basically he applies this fourth lens that we I think even in DevOps we try to say you know it's about culture, it's about behavior. But imagine putting all four components in one sort of structure to understand complexity, where you actually, you know, like understand biases and understand the sort of, you know, like how these things play. And then you can look at that body of work with sort of kind of and Chris Argers, right, all that stuff. Again, I think, if not directly influenced by Deming, definitely indirectly. I mean, about, mm. you know, the sort of, um, you, know, uh, be, you know, behavior science and, and how we make choices based on, our, um, you know, sort of decision making and our bias. And he, so he knew that. He said that, like, basically, one of the, the things that sort of codified me, I, I was still people able, like I told you earlier, I don't know that reading new economics is the best way to understand system of knowledge. Oh, really? The way I learned it was actually a bunch of the, the healthcare industry has probably taken Deming's work farther than any other industry. Hmm. you know and uh and so i i watched a bunch of videos when one was just a simple like like you just getting people in a hospital to sort of wash your hands you can show them all you want to know about system thinking and how it affects the global opter how it does variation and you can do statistics and you can do all that stuff but if somebody firmly believes that it's a waste of time to wash your hands you know which kind of stupid given the pandemic which is had, but um the um like you, you're gonna like you're not gonna be able to attack it with like you know Stats and like you're gonna have to figure out how to get over and around that bias. And I thought it was just brilliant that he included that as an equal lens mm-hmm. among the other four. And and so so that that's why I think that like as you know, and you asked me early like why in the early session why do I um you know why did I sort of get so involved in Deming because the thing that you understood early in the DevOps we we're not just being in in large infrastructure try to figure out the things that work versus the things that don't work is um, there's always sort of a human element to it. And you always know that there there are things like you, in the earliest DevOps sessions, you know, we, we talk about, you know, there was beer ops, right? Like it was sort of a joke, right? Everybody went out to why, because you had, to like, you couldn't just say, well, we got, you know, we got this monitoring tool, we got chef, we got CF engine, we got all these tools, right? Like, there was a little bit of other thing you had to deal with. And that was sort of human psychology of how you get people to adopt and change. And he saw that clearly, I would say, probably throughout his whole career. He didn't, he didn't just wake up, you know, at 90 years old and say, Oh, I'm going to put this theory of psychology. I mean, he was, he was gathering knowledge of that, like coming out of college, or, you know, understanding, um, you know, how pragmatism was changed, was the first American philosophy And how understood how that was changing the way people thought, what he learned from the Japanese culture about sort of intrinsic nature of work.
0: Yeah. So for the listener, I want to give a little bit background on some of the content uh, in the book, some thoughts, and then we can move on to discussing the red beads. So one thing that I really took away from uh, new economics was like the first thing Globally optimized system has unoptimized components. Like if you're trying to create an optimized system, you cannot over-optimize the components because then you're creating negative outcomes in the system. And it gives the example of a company who tries to save money on a flight to send an employee somewhere just so they can arrive jet lag. Well, sure, the company saved money, but then the person's not able to do the job when they get there. Just an example of systems thinking. Then the other one is about, this was really the first time I ever had been introduced to statistical process control and separating two different causes, common cause and special cause. This is like, to me, one of the biggest takeaways from the book was that I had no knowledge of this and I had been going about a lot of the work that I had been doing wrong because I had been making the two mistakes that he talks about, which is attributing special causes to common causes and the reverse, attributing common causes to special causes or whatever that one was. Which then leads into, I think, which was actually my favorite chapter of the book, which is the discussion about the red beads because it covers variance, it covers inter- like systems thinking, and of course, the human psychology. So, John, could you talk about and introduce the listener to the red beads?
1: Yeah. So I did want to sort of backtrack on a couple of things. You know, you, the, I, I, I think um, one of my favorite all-time quotes, and I don't have it in front of me, but it's an unknown author. It's something like. Um, misunderstanding variation is the root of all evil misappropriations knee jerk reactions to your point like understanding what the difference between common cause and special cause correlation is and how to sort of understand that you know like like knowing like what you don't want to do is when it's special cause react like it's common and when it's common don't react like like there's beauty in that and then the other thing that was uh, that you mentioned like another great example is you know, Silicon Valley, a lot some of of Silicon Valley bigger companies will just pay for lunch. And so, a classic sort of bank or insurance company, like, that's a terrible ROI, you know, like you, you're paying, like what you're doing is you're getting people to sort of work through lunches, collaborating. They're not like going out of the house. Like, so that whole thing of like, um, you know, understanding uh, what some people don't hear of this guy much often, but in the early cloud days, he was very famous, uh, Randy Bias. What he called, you know, the difference between bottom line ROI and top line ROI, right? Mm. Um, so the red bean is a great example, I think, of um, of just showing how that you can fall into these traps of. How, you know, so Deming hated MBOs. I am pretty certain. Like everybody, grab your seat. You're going to get upset when you hear this. I think he would hate OKRs. <laughs> In like I'm just reading uh, "Working Backwards," right? And and and, and Jeff Bezos is. Ideas of how they built stuff in Amazon, right? And that, they weren't, they didn't look anything like OKRs.
0: And by you know, right? MBO, you meant management by objectives. Management
1: by objectives. I suspect he would have hated KPIs. I think you know, um, and I, I I would argue that he probably would hate you know the way most people sort
0: of uh, implement OKRs today. Right? And so coming from the SRE side, I'm not sure. I mean, it's sort of. So like one of my thoughts too was I wonder what this guy would have to say about SLOs. Oh, I think he'd be all in on that, right? I think <laughs> we could like flow another hour on
1: this, but <laughs> I think he'd be all in on it because the, the thing about the SLO and SLIs are it's a social technical contract mm-hmm. over delivering a service. So it's totally systems thinking.
0: Yeah, this sort of that's kind of like what I thought too is that you have to sort of differentiate between, like, say, let's just say for the sake of discussion here, You know, let's just assume that Deming would like something like SLOs because it's sort of a holistic measurement of the system, and he's all about systems thinking and you know output. Well, and it's
1: calibrating and feedback loops, right? In other words, um, you know that I mean, the the whole idea of doing SLOs and specifically SLIs, right, is it's a collaboration, right? You sort of bring in the different parties and say, you know, hey, let's experiment. It's like Kanban too. Like you don't build your first Kanban and say this is the way it's always going to be. Right. It emerges. Yeah, and and so I think about SLI, SLO, and SLIs is these original conversations about how do we manage this social, this sort of social technical contract between people who deliver software and people who might, at scale, manage it. Yeah, I, you know, I I I think he'd be all over that. Now I think OKRs, are, you know, like you know, if you ran them the way I guess they were originally defined, but like when you start doing it, sort of personal OKRs and sort of quarterly OKRs, you're just not. Here's the thing about Deming. I think he said he understood that there are complex. These are all complex systems, mm-hmm. and that that's why he was so into in statistics. Yeah. Right. Um, you know. In fact, there's a great. Somebody asked him once. He said, um, he said how does a, a, a mathematical physicist become a statistician?" And his answer was, "I've always been interested in least and uh, in, in theory of errors. Well, that's probability. Yeah. Right." That's understanding that it's non-determinism and it's beautiful core. And, and he said, I also have been trained in least squares by the best. So he understood that the way you solve problems is you have to approximate and you have to calibrate. And, and I think anyway, and that's why I think sort of deterministic structures of like trying to figure out what you're gonna look like in, in a month from now, or you know, I mean, even Rother's in his his uh the gray zone. All right, so back mm-hmm. to the red bean, which is a perfect example of when you build these arbitrary constructs of you know who, you know Joe I, I expect you know this many red beans this quarter and 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 if these are things that you're sort of measuring that are out of the control of people, then it's sort of folly right? So the whole exercise is somebody Joe will scoop up beans and is there's, there's a disproportionate number of red beans versus white beans and they're all mixed up and Joe scoops it up and I'm like good job Joe you got a ton of red beans you're awesome. You know, and then Mary comes up and scoops up, you know, they mix it up and she gets, you know, a low-level red beans. Like, and then it's like, eh. you know, Mary, you got really got to work on your your sort of red bean, you know. And, um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, when we look at how we structure our organizations and the way we, we don't really give people to, the ability to control their environments and we don't give them the freedom, you know, if you're like, we'll take this right to software. If you're sort of massive waterfall Mm-hmm. And you're a developer that has to sort of contribute as part of this monster monolith that basically gets delivered every six months. And you might have written like the most amazing, like, uh, you know, um, payments, whatever, right? It's, the code might have been, rock solid, greatest stuff ever. But the whole system every six months goes down for like a month and a half before they go ahead and get it rolling, right? Like, you know, as opposed to another team that gave somebody, you know, they had their own atomic service, right? Uh, this, you know, poor Joe or Sally is, mm-hmm. you know, is getting dinged on her bonus, and then the structure of a. So, it, um, I, I got to tell one of my favorite all time stories. So, when I was at Chef, and this is public now, so we almost everybody at Chef in the early days was ex uh, Amazon, mm-hmm. and so one of the guys, Jesse Robbins, was the C, our CEO at Chef, and he was um, he's self titled at Amazon the master of disaster. Okay, he was there from the early days. He ran infrastructure. You couldn't get anything on. This is pre Amazon Cloud, right? You couldn't get anything on his system without his approval. Mm-hmm. So there's this great story about, and this is just misaligned a sentence, right? Which is um, the um, the Kindle was coming out, and I don't have the exacts. I'm going by sort of memory of what Jesse would tell the story periodically, and he's told it publicly a couple times now. So the Kindle's coming out, and they um, they had all the press release, the, the you know the stock. Price was all you know. Like everything was business wide in motion for this to hit. Like let's just say on a Monday. I don't know if it was a Monday. Yep. So they went ahead and they went you know suggested to get approval to put it in production. And he's like, no, that's not been tested. It's you know it's probably going to bring down the system. And it was like a battle royale, right? Like, and the battle supposedly went to Bezos from what I you went know, third, maybe fourth party hearing. But I did hear it from Jesse, and uh, and supposedly Jesse was in that meeting. And the argument was stock price goes down or a system goes down. And they both levied sort of the product owner and Jesse leveled their argument and, and Jesse lost. And the and the, the product went in, glorious the price. Wall Street was great. It was early days of Amazon e-com. The site went down, big time down. Hours. Mm-hmm. They have an after party for the glorious success of the Kingville software and product hitting the market on time. Wall Street's happy. And uh, they invite Jesse's team. To the party.
0: They don't come. They can't go. They're exactly. Turning, exactly. They're busy.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, that's that's it, right? That's the red bean, you know?
0: Yeah. So for the listener, just to, like, recap this experiment here, the idea here is that there's a tub or some like, mixed jar of like, red and white beads, beans, whatever. It doesn't matter. Just mix things. Yeah. So you're given this paddle, and this paddle can pick up 50 beads at a time. And you're supposed to get a certain percentage of red beads And your goal is to remove all of the red beads from this jar, right? Picking them up in this, with this scoop. And, you know, he gives out the requirements, which is like each willing worker is supposed to scoop like this many times per minute and pick up 50 beads at a time and, you know, do it in this, you know, amount of time. And I'm reading this and just thinking like, man, there's no way this can ever work. I mean, I know how this is sort of going to play right, out because you're, you're. The, the the worker has no input into the process. Like what they're picking up each time is, t- is totally random, but yet yeah. each worker, in this case, each person who's scooping out of this jar is being compared to the other person, even though there's no logical way you compare them. And that it's so simple in that in, when you see it, like
1: you see it in that version, you're like, well, oh, that's stupid. But then you, if you step back and say, wait a minute, like, aren't how, how we doing, you know, that there, there's, um, I don't know if you've ever heard, there, there's somebody created a game called Kata in the Classroom. Have you ever heard about this?
0: No, I have not. It's,
1: it's, created it's brilliant. Oh, it's brilliant. They based it on Mike Roth's Kata. So you get groups of five that have to build um, a puzzle, three-year-old puzzle. It's like 15 pieces. Mm-hmm. And and in in these teams of like five, you're great. if you're lucky, you get like four or five different people doing it at the same time. And and so what they do first is you know so what you sort of say is the goal or the true north right is to build the puzzle in 15 seconds. And then um, then you go through these KATAs, like you know and, the, and you baseline and and normally everybody hits like 40 maybe 60 90 seconds first time, mm-hmm. right? And then. Um, and then they sort of go through like five katas—you know, plan, do, check, act—figure out their strategies. And and typically, I don't think anybody—I've never seen. And I asked my, nobody's ever gotten to 15 seconds. I've seen teams break 20, but it's it's a, the puzzle itself. It have to be this specific puzzle says for three year olds or and above. So I've actually done this with a leadership group. So I did it with a company. I had a whole bunch of people, in there, and they said, "Oh, you know, John, you want to you, you want to get us to believe that you can change this place." get our C-level team to play this game for 90 minutes. And I did. Mm. And it was just amazing. You know, you sit there and, and you 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 just watch the, like these are people that are running a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar corporation and they're struggling to get reasonable efficiencies. Five people, like, I mean, like probably a million dollar salary per group. And they're struggling to get basically, what is a three-year-old plan? And it's, you learn as you go into the group, like you have to start getting some flow and you learn a lot about sort of, how do you solve problems in a group? But but it's the same thing, right? It's this, you know, if I told you, hey, you know, like your company was um, like, we'll go out of business if you can't, you know, the five executives can't create a puzzle. Mm. Well, you put them in a room and like five, four is later, they're scratching their head why they can't break 30 seconds, you know? Um,
0: yeah. Okay, so you earlier you mentioned uh, Deming's write, writing style. And uh, I tend to agree with you. He has a kind of a weird style. It's kind of a little bit hard to read, but I like yeah. how sometimes he just sort of, he's just writing and then all of a sudden he'll just drop like one sentence that's just like a hammer. Like he knows mm, that he's dropping mm, it on yeah. you. And that's yeah. the end of the Red Beads chapter when he's like, you may observe this in your own work and just ends the chapter. It's like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah like, right, <laughs> so. I read it. I just thought like, okay, yeah, you can feel this sort of, that there's no way this could work yet. We're all still participating in it. And he tells the story of the woman who participated in the event who approached him and said, look, Dr. Deming, I I still feel obligated to participate and do all these things because, you know, I'm a member of the system. And she, you know, she talks about how she was like emotionally invested in it and she was psychologically invested, even though her brain is telling her that, yeah. like, look, there's no way you can do this. But there's still this human emotional like connection to like, I want to do what I need to do or I want to do it well, whatever that is. but even when you know it's futile, you'll still connect it to it. And, like, as thinking in systems and thinking about people, like, how can you construct systems and, like, ways of working that don't put people in that state? Yeah. You know, like, it's so important to think about the human involved also. And just really like that aside. Yeah. And, then, uh, in the story. Know, it,
1: and we do it every day, right? Like, I mean, it, you've seen, like, people who work in companies, you know, I do a lot of assessments where I go in a company and I'll interview hundreds of people and, You'll find people that um, know it's broken, you know, like, especially when you get into sort of the stuff like we're moving to cloud, but you can't do this, this and this, but you can't have that because you can do this and, you know. And, and so I asked them, like, like, what do you do? Like, you know, like you, you're you told you have to move this out because you cloud, but then there's another group that tells you you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do this. And they're like, well, I basically create crappy software. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I'm going to do my job. Like I get paid, I got to create it. So if you put, I mean, people either figure out like workarounds that's the whole go rat thing, right? Like a lot of people, and that's, you know, in the end, that's where you get this terrible tech, you know, another form of debt where when you actually try to get things aligned, you have to go back and start finding all the, um, you know, how people did the workaround on the workaround. Cause you have people who are just like, you know, I'm going to do my job and I'm going to do it. Great. And so even though they tell me, uh, you know, that the, uh, Heather Mickman, there's a great story in Devil's Handbook, but Heather Mickman at, uh, at Target, right? She decided that she thought that the first year that Target was going to go all in on sort of e-commerce and web-based commerce, that she needed uh, uh, Kafka and Cassandra. Mm. So she went to this board, the LARP or whatever, and they like, absolutely not. No way. You could never do that in a retail. She did it anyway. Basically, it was, you know, sort of, it was, a you know, like, everybody realized they could have never survived that first year. She was in charge of, like, the, the whole commerce API. Yeah. Subset, right? So, and then, like, they actually got rid of the LARP, like, this, like, architecture review. I forgot what the L stood for. Like, and she had a plaque that just said, you know, and congratulations for getting rid of the LARP, right? But, so there's those type of people. And then there's the people that sort of become sort of apathetic or somewhat cynical in that, you know, like, all right, you know, I don't know. They say they want X. I told them that they shouldn't do X, but they told me, you know, shut up and do X. So I'll do X in a crappy way. Mm -hmm. And then there's the people just sort of flounder, right? Like they're just sort of in constant chaos with themselves. Mm -hmm. Like they're probably like that woman, you know, like who, who like just, you know. So, you know, it's tough, right? And, you know, you have to, I was just interviewing Courtney Courtney Kisler, and I think she's one of the best enterprise manager leaders I know. You know, and she says that she makes sure that her, you know, people, I guess, the, like certain things, like she thought about Deming, and she said, I want to make sure my people, her, her, one of Deming's quote about, there has to be joy in the world. And, you know, she's, that's one thing I, you know, there's other things I look for, but I do look for that constantly, that I want to make sure the people that work for me is sort of like, a, and if they're not, then we got to figure out what in the system is not right. And it may be them, mm. but, you know, and she didn't say that, but, but, um, but it may be the person, but, you know.
0: Well, I think that's a good segue into probably the last conversation that we have. So let's pause here and we'll pick it up again in the next episode. You've just finished another episode of Small Batches, a podcast on building a high-performance software delivery organization. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, go to smallbatches.fm. I hope to have you back again for the next episode. So until then, happy shipping. like the sound of small batches? This episode was produced by Podsworth Media. That's podsworth.com.